Good morning, good morning everybody, welcome. Who's been to church with an intermission before, right? Yeah, yeah, we, we struggle to, what do we call that time? Is it the fellowship time, the time for generosity, the, the intermission? It's, it's all of those things. Well, again, as Caleb said, we, uh, we firmly believe here that uh, we want you to connect relationally with the Lord horizontally and relationally with one another horizontally as well, and so we try and create a little space in our uh, service to do that without making you, you shake hands with one another. You've all been to churches where you do that, and I always, people grumble about that, but I think it's good, it's helpful, so yeah, we leave it up to you. You can stay seated or you can go get to know somebody, whatever you would like, whatever, whatever fits your fancy. So we are wrapping up our series. We've been in a series called The Man of Mystery looking at snapshots in the life of Jesus through mostly the Gospel of John, or sorry, the Gospel of Mark. I mean, in the Gospel of Mark. Mark really wrote his Gospel to answer two questions. Who is Jesus, and how should you and me, how should we respond to him? And so I wanted to start this morning with that question to you. You don't have to answer it, obviously, out loud, but... Who is Jesus to you? Do you know? How have you responded to him? Again, this is why the Gospel of Mark has been written. As we've been walking through uh, the Gospel of Mark, we've seen snapshots in the life of Jesus. We've, she- we've seen him being revealed to the crowds and hopefully to us as, as readers. Hopefully we've seen that, yeah, he was, he was a mysterious person, um, but along with that, he's also a person that we have to make a decision about. We have to decide, who is Jesus to to me? Who is he going to be in my life? How am I going to relate to him? How am I going to respond to him as a historical person, as a real person, a person who was God, is God, all of those things? How am I going to respond? What decision do I make about who Jesus Christ is? And as you think about that, I want to encourage you to think beyond just mere facts this morning. Just this past week in my Men's Connect group, we meet every Wednesday night. I think there's a total of six of us that we meet in my office to read some scripture, to encourage one another, talk about our week, all of those things. And uh, in, our, in our last time together, this topic came up. We were talking about the reality that in America, in America today, even in, in rural northwest Ohio, Henry County, there are a lot of folks who claim to believe in Jesus. A lot of folks in our culture claim to believe in Jesus. And what they mean by that is that they believe he was a person. Some would even go so far as to affirm many of the facts that, that we know about Jesus in Scripture. He was God. Maybe he even, we believe he, he was God's son. And al- although Christianity today, it, it's not as popular as it used to be throughout a whole in our culture, there's still echoes of Christianity very much in American culture, right? Turn on the the country music station of your choosing, and you're going to hear themes of Christian stuff. You're going to hear the name of Jesus and and all of that stuff, right? I call it country music Christianity. That's because although we're, we're becoming more secular as a culture and maybe less Christian, there's still echoes of Christianity spread throughout our culture, right? And so lots of people, if you ask them, you know, what does it mean or, or do, do I believe in Jesus? A lot of people would say, yeah, I do. I believe, I believe in, in Jesus. I know who he was. I believe he was, he was this, he was that, he was whatever, right? 
So there's echoes of Christianity, and although we're becoming more secular, we're also, they've, they've done studies recently, that we're more open to spirituality as a culture than we've ever been. We're open to things like new modern medicines and kind of like alternative medicines. You hear people talk about all kinds of things on TikTok. You know, you have this ailment and don't eat this dye and there's all, like, we're all into alternative medicines. That's all over the place. We're also into meditation, right? Like mindfulness is kind of the buzzword. We're into spiritual things. We're more spiritual as a culture than we've ever been. And so what's happening as Americans, is we're kind of, we're open to, to picking and choosing from various religious sources, right? We pick and choose what we like, and we create our own sets of belief that, that align with our pre-existing ideas. And this helps a lot of folks start to feel more confident about their identity, about their purpose in life. It makes us feel better about who we are, what we aspire to be. And, and honestly, it's kind of like if we can pick and choose from various different sources of spirituality and medicine and religions, we can kind of make this weird mixture of spirituality that can kind of rubber stamp who we think we are as a person. And so many people in our world today, especially in America, many people claim to believe in Jesus. And for a lot of folks, what that means is that they're happy to add Jesus to their list of spiritual ideas. We pick and choose what we like about Jesus, the warm and cuddly stuff, and then we kind of just get rid of all of the other stuff that we don't like as much, right? We kind of just pick and choose what we like and add it to our spiritual smorgasbord of our belief system. Many folks are happy to claim a belief in Jesus so that they can rest easy knowing that they will escape eternal punishment. I mean, it's better than the alternative, right? We'll just mix a little Jesus in there and make sure we got our basis covered. They're happy to jump through the religious hoops that they deem necessary to cover over whatever chosen lifestyle it is that they're living at the moment. They're happy to have Jesus as their Savior, but many folks do not want Jesus as their Lord. They're happy to have him as their savior, but they don't want him to be the God or king in their life who has the right and the authority, the power to tell them how to live. So many claim to believe in Jesus. They agree to a list of facts in the Bible as one might intellectually agree to the fact that George Washington was the first president of the United States. And so their belief in Jesus has about as much bearing on their lives today as does the fact that old George was our first president. So when I ask you this morning how you've responded to this man of mystery, I want you to know that the response that God has in mind for our salvation is more, so much more, than just intellectual assent, than just agreeing to a set of facts in the Bible. It is not enough for you to simply agree to a set of facts about who you think Jesus was and is. In our Connect group, we were talking about this, and I brought up a verse that gives me a, a lot of pause from James 2.19. James writes, he says, You believe there is one God. You agree with the facts of Scripture. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. This verse indicates that demons know the facts about who God is, but that does not lead them into the safety, security, and rest of God through salvation. 
Rather, the facts that they know of God cause them to shudder in fear, presumably the fear of judgment. Apparently, Jesus has more in mind. He has something more in mind for us than just learning facts about him as the response that's required from us to receive salvation. So my question is, what does he have in mind for us? What is the response that Jesus desires from us in order to be saved? Again, another passage of Scripture comes to mind. It's, it's something that Matthew records for us in Matthew 7, verses 21 and 23. Jesus is discussing the difference between true disciples and false disciples. Let's read what, what he says together. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we, or, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons. And in your name, Jesus, perform many miracles. Then Jesus says, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. See, church, if we put this section of Scripture together with James 2, 19, we can deduce, or, yeah, we can deduce that salvation does not come from knowing facts about Jesus alone. Again, even the demons know the facts about Jesus, and they aren't saved. Nor does doing good things for Jesus save us either. Here in Matthew, we see people doing very spiritual things, good things even, prophesying, driving out the demonic, performing miracles. But Jesus has strong words for these people. What does he say to them? What does he say to the people who are going to church, who say they believe all of the right things and do all of the church things? He says to them, away from me, I never knew you. Here it is, church. Do you want to know how to be saved? Do you want to know the kind of response you need to have to this mystery man, Jesus Christ, for you to know salvation? You need to know Jesus personally. You need to allow him to know you personally as well. Knowing and doing the religious rules, knowing and doing the religious facts will not save you. You have to know Jesus personally. This is what the Bible is and always has been about. From the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, it is a book about how you can know God personally. Now I want to look with you at one more mysterious event here recorded for us in the Gospel of Mark. It's packed with a ton of symbolism and meaning. And we're going to spend a little bit of time. We can't go through all of it because it's just so jam-packed with stuff. So we're going to kind of do a quick flyover and unpack some of it. But what I want you to see is not just the cool symbolism and facts of the Scripture. What I want you to pay closest attention to as we read this mysterious encounter I want you to pay close attention to how Jesus responds to what happens in Mark 9, which has become known throughout church history as the transfiguration. The transfiguration. 
how Jesus responds to glory. We're going to see him glorified in in a crazy way here in a minute. And how Jesus responds to that glory. I want you to pay close attention to that. Not only his, how he responds, not only should that make us want to know him personally, but it should also encourage us as we see how he responds to glory. That if we choose to make him our Lord and our Savior, even though we may suffer by, by seeing what he does for us here in this scripture, we can know and we can trust that even if we suffer, we will never suffer alone. Why? Because you will see Jesus this morning turn away from glory and choose love. A love that ultimately leads him through a path of immense suffering and sacrifice so that he might make his home with us. So that whatever we go through, we could know that we will never walk it alone. Before we read Mark Mark 9 together, I want to give you a little bit of context about what is going on. As we've been studying in Mark... Mark has shown us that Jesus is a mysterious man of strange, almost otherworldly power and authority, right? He came casting out demons. He came healing people with supernatural power and authority. And all of these actions, if you were to keep reading from Mark 1 up until Mark 8, they sort of find their climax in Mark 8, where Jesus gets alone with his inner core of disciples and they, they begin to show him, to reveal to us, the readers, and to Jesus that they understand who Jesus is. And in Mark 8, we, we get kind of the tipping point where Jesus gives them the question. He's like, who do people say that I am? And he's like, well, some people say I'm Moses, and some people say you're Elijah. And Jesus is like, that's great, but I want you to know, you guys are my closest, you're my dudes. Who, who do you say that I am? You've heard me, you've spent time with me, you've seen it all. Who do you say that I am? And in Mark eight twenty nine, it's recorded, Peter responds to that question. He says, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the Holy One of God. Jesus affirms that statement. He says, you don't know this by any other power than by the power of the supernatural revelation of my Holy Spirit. This has been revealed to you. So Jesus' inner core of disciples, they correctly identify who Jesus is. And then once Jesus is convinced that they know who he is, they understand. They've got their, like, this is the guy. This is God incarnate, right? Chili con carne. Chili with meat. God incarnate. God with meat on. God in the flesh. That's how I remember that, right? Chili con carne. This is Jesus, God with meat on, with flesh on, God in the flesh. When Jesus, he, he, he gets, they're tracking with me. They know who I am. He makes a shift in what he starts to declare. And he starts to speak to them about how he, the son of man, that's his favorite name for himself. Jesus begins to speak to his disciples who have comprehended who he is, and all of what it means to have the glory of God in flesh. Jesus begins to speak to his disciples about how the Son of Man must suffer many things and eventually be killed by the leaders of the day and then raised three days later. And in response to Jesus' teaching that his that he, he must suffer and die and that even his, his disciples, as they follow him, they're going to suffer as well. Peter pulls Jesus aside and he says, may that, may that never be. 
No, never. I will not allow that to happen, right? In Mark 8.32, it's recorded for us that Peter actually takes Jesus aside. He's like, hey, man, what are you saying? Like, stop saying this stuff. He rebukes him for speaking about suffering and death, which Jesus then responds to Peter in Mark 8.33 by saying, get behind me, Satan, for you do not have the plans of God in mind, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus turns to the crowds that are with him and his disciples, and he tells them that not only must he suffer and die, not only is the path for the Messiah a path of suffering and dying to oneself, but he goes on to say emphatically that those who would follow me must also die to themselves. He goes so far to say, I expect my followers to pick up their cross with me and follow me to their death as well. Look at Mark 8, 34. Then he called the crowds to him, along with his disciples, and he said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Take up your cross. For us, that has become kind of a cute Christian saying that we get tattooed on our biceps, right? And we put on a necklace. Do you know what that meant in the days that Jesus spoke those words? Taking up your cross meant carrying an instrument of torture to your death and humiliation. Can we all just agree that for someone trying to start a movement, this isn't something that would focus group very well, right? (laughs) Right? Imagine like, you're like, hey, I want to start a movement. And so you hire like some marketing guru and they're like, hey, let's focus group a good tagline for your thing right? And you come into that room and you're like, all right, here's what I'm thinking. Vote for me and I'll put you in the electric chair. We don't have to focus group that, right? Like we all know that's terrible. Like, yeah, don't do that. That's a bad tagline. And that's what Jesus comes saying. Here Jesus is. People are finally starting to grasp who he is. They're finally starting to wrap his mind around what is happening. God has shown up in the flesh. And he starts telling his his inner circle and his disciples that are following him that he's going to die. And furthermore, that he expects his followers to join with him in his suffering. Is this not just the most mysterious thing that you've ever heard in your life? It's bewildering. And I think this is precisely why Jesus takes his inner core with him, his most trusted confidence, confidants. I think this is why he takes his, his guys with him to where we see him going in Mark 9, to the mountaintop. Let's read it together. Mark 9, picking up in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzlingly white, whiter than anyone in the world could ever bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. We should put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. And then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, 
This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly they looked around. They no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they kept the matter to themselves, discussing, what in the world does rising from the dead mean? And they asked him, why do teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. All right. When we pick up the story in Mark 9, you should pay close attention to that first phrase there. Six days later, after six days, this is a reference to the time when Peter makes the declaration about Jesus being the Messiah. It's six days later after that time. Mark is giving us this little tidbit because he wants us to connect. He wants us to connect this story to another story in the Old Testament, a time when Moses went up onto a high mountaintop to receive the Ten Commandments from the Lord God. And so he he clues us in. If you go back into Exodus, we find Moses going up on the mountaintop and it's covered by a cloud and he waits there for six days until the voice from the cloud speaks to him. And so Mark is cluing us in. I want you to connect these two stories. You're going to see Moses in a second. And what's happening, it's a... It's a connection that, that happened way, a way long time ago in the Old Testament. And so Mark says, six days later, six days later, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus, they go up on the mountaintop. And there's a story that happens with them that's very similar to a story that happens to Moses and to Elijah. They've had mountaintop experiences with the Lord as well. And I want you to understand why why Jesus is doing this. I want you to try to get into the, the mindset of Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John, and the other disciples, they're getting the ideas we've already said of who Jesus is. And if you've been with us through this series, you'll know that, that their ideas about Jesus, they, they know who he is, but what they think he's going to do is very mistaken, right? They're very hung up on, on political revolution. They don't understand that Jesus' primary aim in coming is spiritual transformation. And so you can easily imagine as Jesus is doing all of these crazy things, he's teaching in power, he's healing people in power and authority, he's casting out demons. Everywhere he goes, revival is breaking out. And you could see if you were these guys, you would be very excited about that, right? You're in his inner circle and you're thinking, all right, like this this is an easy guy to get behind. Imagine if there's a presidential nominee who starts doing the the things that Jesus did. Not just turning a phrase with power and authority, right? They can do that to a certain degree, but they start doing miracles. They start casting out demons. They start doing spiritual stuff. You could see pretty quick, they could take over the world. They could. And if you were in their inner circle, you might think, man, I can't wait for this to happen. All of the power and authority that is going to be theirs, I will be on this guy's coattails. And so I will ride that power and authority into wealth, right? And so we've got, 
we've got Peter. I just picture him kind of like in a daydream, thinking about all of the awesome stuff and the revival. And they're excited. Jesus is going to take over Rome, and we're going to have a, a, a political revolution. And, and, and he's like daydreaming about being on like a, a memory foam mattress and eating grapes, and someone's fanning him with like eucalyptus leaves because he's in Jesus' inner circle. And then Jesus starts talking about suffering and death, and you can almost hear the record just, Err! Like in his mind, he like wakes up out of his revelry. He's like, wait, 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 what, Jesus? You're going to die? Well, that's not, that's not my plan. That's not, that's not what, that's not how this is going to work, right? So Jesus starts talking about suffering and death. And not only that, for himself, but also for his followers. Take up your cross. And you could see how the inner circle would be confused, but also like, wait, what, Jesus? That, that's, not, that's not what any of us have in mind. You could begin to see how they might start to seriously question, Jesus, have you gone off, like, are you mental? Have you gone off your rocker? No one in this world, if they were doing what you were doing right now, nobody is going to willingly give up their life. They are going to ride that authority and power into a throne. Come on, Jesus. And this is precisely why the Lord takes them up the mountaintop. They need some reassurance to listen to what Jesus is saying. Six days later, after Peter correctly identifies Jesus, six days later, just like when Moses met with God on his mountaintop, six days later, a cloud descends upon Mount Hermon. And Jesus is transfigured. His appearance is changed. And what is a reality in heaven is revealed on earth. The veil is lifted. And Jesus' true form is revealed to Peter, James, and John. I want you to imagine this. Close your eyes with me. Imagine it. Jesus shines like the sun. Brighter white than anyone could ever bleach a garment. He shines forth with the Shekinah glory cloud that once filled the temple of God in the Old Testament. Shekinah is a Hebrew word that means dwelling or settling. When God's presence came, when it dwelt, when it settled upon the temple, it glowed. It shone with a light that just verbiated or verberated and vibrated Upon the tent, the tabernacle, it shone forth. And now that same light or glory is emanating and vibrating forth from Jesus Christ. And then two of the greats from the Old Testament appear. Moses, the man who led Israel from their slavery to Egypt into freedom. And Elijah, the prophet of God who fought historically and heroically against the forces of evil to deliver God's people from an evil king and from idolatry to pagan gods. Two men that sort of summarize the law and the prophets, they show up and they begin to speak with Jesus. And as you're watching this transpire, these men who you've read about, they show up and they begin to speak with Jesus as if they know him. Because indeed they do. I believe that when Elijah hears the voice in the crack of the mountain when he sees the backside of God 
go past. When Moses goes into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord as with a friend face to face, I believe they met with Jesus Christ. It's an otherworldly encounter. It's a mysterious and terrifying event. We're told as much. Peter and the others are terrified. Mark says they were so frightened. If you haven't opened your eyes yet, you can. They were so frightened. Their fear of seeing the glory of the Lord, it again points us back to the time in Israel when the glory of the Lord descended upon the mountain and out of the cloud the Lord spoke and the people said to Moses, you go up for us. We don't even want to go close to the mountain because of God's presence. It's too fearful for us. Peter, James, and John, they feel that terror. They're so afraid. And Peter being Peter, he's never speechless, right? (laughs) He's never speechless. He's too afraid to know what to say. But rather than just staying silent, like, you know, would be the wise thing. He's like, I don't know, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. No, Peter opens his mouth, right? And the first thing that pops into his head just comes out. "We We should build tents here, he says. We should put a tent up. Which is kind of laughable if you think about it. Why would sparkling and dazzling beings who can just appear out of thin air, why would they need a tent or a dwelling place? Sounds silly, right? Not so fast. Peter, as flippant as he can be, is actually on to something here. We just mentioned briefly the glory cloud or the Shekinah presence or glory of God descending upon the temple. Another word for temple in the Old Testament is tabernacle. Do you know what the word tabernacle means? It means tent or more literally it means dwelling place. Tabernacle. To tabernacle somewhere means to pitch your tent among us. To dwell with You see, when Moses was up on the mountaintop with God and he receives instructions from God about the Ten Commandments, he also receives more instructions. In Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9, the Lord tells, tells Moses from the cloud, he says, Then have them, them being the Israelites, have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle, make this tent, and all its furnishings exactly as the pattern I will show you. I want to dwell with my people, God says. You see, God's desire throughout the law and the prophets has always been to make a home, a dwelling place among his people. He has desired to be their God and for them to be his people. And then in the Gospel of John, the introduction to the Gospel of John is packed with symbolism. He writes in John 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in John 14, he goes on and he says, or John 1, 14, he says, That Word that was with God and was with God in the beginning that created all things, that Word became flesh and made His what? Dwelling. Tabernacle among us. We have seen His glory The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when Peter says, we should make a dwelling for you here, he's actually on to the right idea. See, Jesus is God's dwelling place 
his tabernacle among humanity. Jesus is how we experience God's presence. And as John says, as he writes in his introduction, Jesus is God's glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. But Jesus, Jesus has something better in mind than a tent at the top of a mountain. You see, while Muslims are supposed to go to Mecca to meet with God at least once in their life, we don't have to go anywhere to meet with Jesus because Jesus intends to make his home, his tent, his tabernacle within each and every person who would choose to follow him in faith and know him personally. Which I believe is why the Father shows up and says what he says here. Peter, James, and John, I want you to know that you understand this right. You understand this is my son whom I love. Now listen to him. Listen to what he's telling you. Listen to him about what? About the way forward. About the path of suffering. Here the disciples and you and I get an emphatic picture of what the way of God is. Although it is sneaky, it's subtle. Although God could gather a following through displays of glory and power so out of this world that no one would ever be able to say no to submitting to him. God does not want followers who fear him. He wants followers who love him and are loyal to him. And in order to win people to himself that way, the way the, this way doesn't require glory, but rather it requires love. Love that is willing to suffer and sacrifice everything for those who would, he would ask to follow him. You're right, Barb. I want you to look at what happens here real fast. Jesus is shown for who he is. The Lord of the universe. The beloved son. He is the physical glory of of Almighty God. Think about the splendor that's on display here. The Romans didn't take his life. Satan didn't take his life. Nobody could take this guy's life. He's the Almighty God. Nobody can tell him what to do. Two of the greats from the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, they come at his beck and call and then they leave when he tells them to leave. Church, heaven will be lit, not by the flaming ball of gas that we call, by, that we call the sun. Heaven will be lit by Jesus Christ's glory and splendor. There will be no sun because the light that comes off Jesus will be enough for there to be day for eternity. That is who shows up here. This is who Jesus is. Nobody can take his life. And he could have stayed on this mountain or he could have went with Elijah and Moses in glory to whatever realm they went to, but he doesn't. He turns his face to that glory. He turns away from that glory and he comes down from the mountain to dwell with his disciples as confused and as frightened as they are. He turns away from glory 
to choose love and the path of suffering to make his home with his people. It's a choice that would ultimately take him down the road of immense suffering and eventually the cross. I want you to see this. Precisely where these men hear the gospel. That Jesus is God's son who has come to take away the sins of the world. Where they hear the gospel and where they both see its glory and their own inadequacy. There Jesus is with them. The one who calls disciples to follow him does not abandon them for glory. But turns away from glory to accompany them on the way to Jerusalem and ultimately the cross. Church, if you haven't already, choose Jesus. Jesus chose love. Love that required sacrifice and suffering to make his home with you and with me. He came to be God's dwelling place with us. Why would you choose to dwell with anyone else? And if this was the path of our Lord and Savior... If suffering, sacrificial love was the path of our Lord and Savior, we should not be surprised along our journey of faith to discover that this is our path as well. At the very beginning of the morning, I asked you, how have you responded to Jesus? I'll ask that same question again. Please don't tell me, don't just tell me that you believe in Jesus. Even the demons believe in Jesus, and they shudder. Don't just tell me that you believe. Make your home with him. Make him your safe place, your dwelling place. Give him the authority over your life. Lord knows he's earned that right. He's earned that right by what he suffered for love's sake on your behalf, on my behalf. Follow him, friend. Become a true disciple of him. Don't just believe in him. Follow him, even if it means suffering. He did it for you. Love him. Love him like he loved you. Love him enough to lay down your wants, your desires, your very life for him. Pick up your cross, friend, and follow him. Let's pray. It's a great question, Barb. Let me pray and ask the Holy Spirit to do that in our hearts. Holy Spirit, Barb, ask a very childlike question, and it's a good question. And it's a question that reveals the kind of heart of what you're looking for from a follower. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for including dummies in the Scripture who struggled to make sense of everything that you were up to in the moment. Men and women who were confused, who were lost, who were inadequate in so many ways, who did not understand what it meant to truly follow. Thank you for showing them and for showing us their heart through them. That what you require from us is not all of the answers, is not some 
seminary degree and theological knowledge. What you require from us is a heart that wants to know you. I'm reminded of Peter's exclamation when Jesus, you're doing some more crazy things. You're telling the crowds, come and eat my flesh and drink my blood. And again, the people are, the disciples, they're like, Jesus, this, this is not how we win people. And Jesus, you asked Peter, do you want to leave me too? And Peter's response, may that be the response of every single one of us in this room. Lord Jesus, I don't understand everything you're saying. I don't even like it always. But where else would I go? I understand you have the words that lead to eternal life. Only you have that knowledge, Lord. And so, even though I don't get it all, I'm going to stick with you. I'm going to walk with you. Lord Jesus, by the power of your Spirit, may we as a people this morning make that our heart's commitment. That even if we don't have it all figured out, even if we don't understand what it looks like day in and day out, would you empower us to make the commitment this morning that come what may, come suffering, come whatever, that we would say as Peter, where else would we go, Lord? You have the knowledge of eternal life. I will stick with you. And because you showed us this morning that you did not choose glory, you chose sacrificial love, you made a promise to stick with us no matter what, that if we choose to stick with you, we would know that we would know that we would know you will never leave us nor forsake us. Lord Jesus, that is a faith you can work with. And I ask by the power of your Spirit this morning that you would go to work with that faith in our life. That we would choose you that we would choose to know you, not just know about you, but that you would teach us to hear your voice, that you would guide us day in and day out so that my, your beloved child, Barbie, that your beloved children here in this room, that we would know that you would guide us and direct us in every small decision of our life, not only by chapter and verse, but by the voice of our good shepherd, the still small voice, who chooses love and sacrifice over glory every single time. Empower us to know you, Lord Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.